Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming today. We're going to go ahead and get started. I'm Laura Odato, the Director of Government Affairs for the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about Radley Belko's new book, which is Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Um, in the book, it goes through sort of the, the current state of where police forces are, which is a little bit different than I think they used to be and what a lot of people realize they are. Um, I'll introduce our speakers in a moment, but a quick thing about sort of what we're going to do today. So we're going to have Bradley speak first, then we have Mark Lomax who's going to talk about the issue as well, and then we'll have plenty of time for Q&A with you all. I also wanted to note that on the Cato-affiliated website, policemisconduct.net, we have a raid map that goes through a lot of the incidents that Radley's going to mention today and where they happen and the details of the story. And it's sort of ongoing. It's updated. So it's a great resource for anyone who's interested in this topic, which I think is all of you. So let me briefly introduce our speakers, then we'll get started. Radley Belko is a senior writer and investigative reporter for the Huffington Post, where he covers civil liberties in the criminal justice system. He's also a media fellow at the Cato Institute. He's a former senior editor for Reason Magazine, and his work has been cited by the US Supreme Court. His writing has also been cited in excerpt by the Mississippi State Supreme Court, and he has had a direct impact on multiple cases at the state level. Mark Lomax is the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. He previously worked in Liberia, West Africa, as the program manager for the United Nations overseeing the Liberian National Police Emergency Response Unit and their police support unit. He's also served as the director for the Bureau of Training and Education. He retired with the Pennsylvania State Police with over 27 years of service, and he's also a graduate of the FBI National Academy. And with that, I will turn things over to Radley. Thank you, um, and thanks for uh, Cato for putting this on, and thanks for Mark and the NTOA for uh, agreeing to uh, have a conversation with us today. So I'm just going to jump right in. Um, So right around Thanksgiving in 2006, uh, a narcotics task force with the Atlanta Police Department was out um, on patrol, I guess. Uh, and they saw someone walking alongside of the road, a guy that they had previously, previously arrested uh, for various drug offenses. Uh, they jumped out on him, uh, threw him to the ground, uh, put a, pulled a gun on him, and we would later found out uh, planted a bag of marijuana on him. Um, he knew he had a long rap sheet. They knew he had a long rap sheet. So they told him they would let him go if he would tell them where uh, they could find a supply of drugs. Uh, so he made up an address, basically on the spot. An address happened to be that of Catherine Johnston. It's a 92-year-old woman who lived in a um, uh, rough part of Atlanta. Uh, Catherine Johnston kept an old rusty revolver by her bed that she used to scare off uh, people when she felt threatened. Now, what's supposed to happen at this point when they get a tip like this is they're supposed to get a confidential informant to do a controlled buy from this address. Um, but that process could take two to three days in Atlanta, uh, and they wanted to get to this drug supply immediately uh, for reasons that I'll explain in a minute. So instead, they made up an informant, um, just lied on the affidavit, created an informant out of uh, thin air, uh, claimed that he had bought the drugs from this address, uh, and instead of taking a few days, it took the process took a few hours, uh, and by, by later that evening, they were breaking down Katherine Johnson's door. Um, she heard people breaking into her house. She gets up, uh, grabs her trusty, rusty, uh, non-functional revolver. Uh, when they break down the door, she's standing there holding a gun. They open fire uh, and kill her. Now, they originally claimed that she had fired at them first. We later found out that wasn't true. The gun didn't work. Two officers were hit by bullets fired by other police officers. Uh, they called two ambulances for the wounded officers. They did not call an ambulance initially for Katherine Johnston. Uh, instead, they handcuffed her uh, and left her to bleed to death on her living room floor. But one officer then went down to the basement to plant marijuana that they claimed she had sold. Um, so at this point, they realize they have to cover their tracks, right? They have to find an informant who's going to say he was the informant named on the search warrant. So they go to this guy that they've used in past investigations, and um, you know informants tend to be somewhat shady characters, um, uh, rival drug dealers, drug addicts, people who are trying to get their own charges uh, um, dropped or diminished. Uh, and to his credit, this guy would not play along. Um, there's this amazing 911 call that uh, where he, he dials the number from the back of a cruiser in Atlanta uh, and says, they're trying to get me to say, I, I helped kill that old lady, and I don't want any part of it. 
Um, he realizes that this is not going, the conversation he's having with these Atlanta police officers isn't going well, so he jumps out of the car and starts to flee. They pursue him. There's this surreal chase through downtown Atlanta uh, where he's trying to run. He's you know, running through businesses. They're chasing after him. Uh, he was also working with the ATF at the time. He finds a phone, calls his ATF handler, who sort of swoops in, picks him up, and drives him out to the suburbs. Uh, they put him up in a hotel. Now there's a federal investigation. So what we found in the federal investigation was that this was rampant in Atlanta, that the lying on the search warrants was common, that these uh, uh, raids on the wrong house was common. In fact, there was an 88-year-old woman who lived near Johnson who had been previously been raided in a wrong door raid. Uh, the Atlanta City Council held hearings where uh, lots of other people came forward and said, yes, this also happened to us. Uh, and what the federal investigation found was that, there, that was that there were quotas on Atlanta Police Department's narcotics officers. They had to arrest so many people each month. They had to seize a minimum quantity of illegal drugs each month. And this is how their performance reviews were done. This is how um, you know, they, who, they decided who got raises, who got promotions. Uh, this is how they were evaluated on how they did their jobs. Now, the federal investigation didn't get into this, but there's a reason why there were quotas on the Atlanta narcotics officers, and that was that there are federal uh, grants that go strictly toward drug policing. So you have all these police departments across the country that are competing for this limited pool of federal money that goes toward drug policing. Um, the, so there's pressure then on the police department to produce the kinds of statistics that will make the department, the department uh, competitive for these funds, and they then press, pass that pressure on to their individual officers. Um, eventually, the entire narcotics squad was either fired or uh, transferred to another department. There were some promises for reforms that really didn't end up panning out in the end. They did create a civilian review board, uh, but it was later sort of um, rendered impotent by uh, lawsuits from the police union. And in the end, I mean, this 92-year-old woman was killed. Uh, and very little changed in terms of actual reforms or actual policy changes. Uh, now, I lead with this story because it sort of embodies uh, a lot of what I talk about in the book. Um, the misplaced incentives, the perverse incentives, the uh, use of these forced entry tactics. Um, this wasn't a SWAT team, uh, necessarily. It was a narcotics task force. Uh, but it was the forced entry at night, uh, the, you know, the incentives to take shortcuts around the Fourth Amendment. Um, you know, Certainly not implying that all police officers lie in search warrants, but I am implying that these incentives create uh, uh, an inducement for taking shortcuts. Um, so I'm going to get into this. Uh, so this is an old Cold War quote. Um, it's commonly attributed to Winston Churchill, although I haven't yet found any proof that he actually said it. Um, but it was a sentiment that, you know, for a long time in this country, this is how we distinguished ourselves from uh, Eastern Bloc countries, right, uh, from police states. Uh, democracy means when there's a knock on the door at 3 a.m., it's probably the milkman. Um, and I bring that quote up just to sort of show, give you sort of some perspective so that by the time we get to the end of the lecture, you can think back on that quote and see how far we've come um, since the Cold War. So in the U.S., we've always had this, uh, drawn this firm line between the military and the police. Um, there's a good reason for that, right, that they have two very different jobs. The military's job is to annihilate a foreign enemy. The job of police officers are to protect our rights, to keep the peace. Um, they are not similar jobs at all. Simply, the, the only similarities are that uh, they both carry guns and are authorized to use force. Um, unfortunately, politicians tend to think the jobs are very similar, um, which reveals a lot, I think, uh, about some of the policies that we have today. Um, but. For the most part, we've done a pretty good job keeping the military out of domestic policing. We don't have soldiers patrolling our streets. We don't have soldiers doing search warrants, you know, conducting search warrants. Um, although during the Reagan administration, there was actually a push to do that. Um, and during that push, it was actually Reagan and some members of Congress actually wanted to bring in active duty military troops to start patrolling streets, to start conducting drug raids, making arrests. Um, and it was actually the military that pushed back on this, and it's one of the few bad ideas uh, on criminal justice that actually didn't pass during the Reagan administration. And this was the number two man at the Pentagon at the time, uh, Tom, uh, Major Marine Major General Thomas uh, Olstead. Uh, and you can see basically his, his uh, this is from his testimony to Congress that this is a very dangerous thing to do, that to bring the military into domestic policing is historically has resulted in disaster. Um, so we've done a good job sort of keeping the military out of domestic law enforcement. What I argue in my book uh, is that we've sort of, uh, done an end around this, right, this idea of posse comitatus. Um, oops. 
the idea, this idea of posse comitatus, done an end around it. And instead of um, bringing soldiers into domestic law enforcement, uh, we have allowed and even encouraged police officers to basically uh, be armed like, um, police like, uh, use the tactics of, be dressed like, and adopt the mindset of soldiers. Uh, and the outcome, uh, I think, is just as troubling as if uh, military were actually doing domestic police themselves. Um, so we're going to play a quick little game here. This is a game called Copper Soldier. So I'm going to show you a photo, um, and you're going to tell me if it's a police officer or a soldier. Um, I will tell you that all these photos are either police in the U.S. or members of the U.S. military. So start here. This is a cop. Soldier. Cop. Those are actually cops. That one gets a lot of people. Soldiers. Soldiers. Cops. It's an Oregon State Trooper. So you get the idea, right? It's becoming increasingly difficult to, tell the, to tell the difference. Um, so back in, uh, this is a cop, by the way. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going to give you a little bit of history now. So there are two kind of um, trends that were going on in the late 60s and early 70s. One of them was the rise of the SWAT team. Uh, the other was the rise of the war on drugs. Um, SWAT team came about in Los Angeles uh, when Daryl Gates was an inspector at LAPD, uh, and he was in charge of the department's response to the Watts riots. Um, and Gates was very troubled by what happened during the Watts riots, and justifiably so. Um, he basically thought he was in the middle of a, an urban war, that uh, these were guerrilla warfare tactics that were being used against the city, against the police officers, against the firefighters. And Gates uh, feared that LAPD had not, uh, did not have an adequate way to respond to these types of situations. And obviously this is a period in U.S. history where there was a lot of civil unrest. There was good reason to think that there were going to be more incidents like this. Uh, and so Gates started looking for answers. Um, he started working with some uh, Marines at, uh, I believe it was Camp Pendleton, uh, and came up with this idea of assembling this uh, elite unit of police officers who would be specially trained in um, specific areas uh, to respond to these kinds of situations and basically deal with them immediately. Um, so you would have somebody who was trained in you know, dealing with snipers, somebody who could do crowd control, somebody who could breach doorways. Um, and the idea is this, this would be a very quickly moving unit that could respond um, instantly and with overpowering force to these kinds of emergency situations. Um, what's one interesting sort of historical nugget to this, uh, when he first broached the idea to Chief William Parker at the time, uh, Parker shot the idea down because Parker said that this came too close to breaching this sort of historical divide between the military and the police. Um, Gates sort of continued with the idea um, surreptitiously, uh, and then when the new police chief took over, uh, when Parker died, I think it was in 67 or 68, um, he got the green light to go ahead with this idea. Uh, Gates, he named it SWAT. Uh, the original acronym was uh, Special Weapons Assault Team. Uh, somebody at LAPD said it's probably not a good idea to have assault in the name, uh, so they changed it to Special Weapons and Tactics. Now, there are a couple of early raids that were very high profile. In fact, the very first raid was on a Black Panther holdout in L.A. Um, that was, uh, ended up being televised uh, on state TV or city TV. The uh, second was a few years later on a, the Symbionese Liberation Army. And that one in particular really kind of thrust the, the SWAT concept into the pop culture. Um, everybody had been following this L.A. They had kidnapped Patty Hearst, this newspaper heiress. Uh, it was sort of the, the tabloid news story of, of, the, of the day. Uh, and so when the FBI and the LAPD had, had cornered uh, the SLA at this building in Los, this home in Los Angeles, uh, there were all sorts of news crews there. In fact, you can go to YouTube, you can actually find video of reporters sort of ducking under cars while they're reporting on this, this uh, raid, this shootout that was going on. Uh, and it really kind of pushed SWAT into the pop culture. These were sort of heroes who had just taken on this, you know, domestic terrorist group that a lot of people were afraid of. Um, so we get, in 1975, a SWAT TV show produced by Aaron Spelling, um, which I highly recommend uh, if you like sort of 70s, cheesy, kind of fast-talking cop shows. It's, it's amazing. Um, then we get, you know, the Milton Bradley SWAT board game, uh, SWAT Viewmaster sets, SWAT lunchboxes, um, little die-cast SWAT mobiles you can, you know, give to your son to raid his sister's dollhouse or whatever. Um, and really kind of then SWAT becomes, you know, this, this, this big idea. Um, so at the same time then, Nixon in 72, Nixon declares war on drugs. 
Uh, he pushes through this idea of the no-knock raid. One of the interesting things about the no-knock raid is that it originally uh, was, well, it was originally in the, um, uh, the Rockefeller administration in New York. Governor Rockefeller had uh, brought up the idea, and it was, it was not something that, was, that police chiefs were clamoring for or demanding. It wasn't something that criminologists were saying was necessary. Uh, it was basically a, it was a political ploy. Uh, it was something Rockefeller wanted to pass to show he was getting tough on drugs. The Nixon administration then adopted the idea um, on the advice of a 29-year-old Senate aide. Uh, again, this was not you know, something law enforcement was demanding. And the no-knock raid ends up passing uh, Congress. They passed two bills, actually, one that applied to D.C. Um, and one that applied to federal agents you know, working across the country. Uh, two, two interesting things that happen in D.C., uh, the, D, the chief of police, Jerry Wilson, actually decides not to use it. He says it's too invasive, um, it's too militaristic, uh, and it's ineffective. Uh, and he decides he actually takes it out of the uh, Metro Police Manual and tells his officers not to conduct these no-knock raids. Um, crime actually goes down in D.C. over the next few years. Well, it goes up in the rest of the country. Um, I'm not saying that not using the no-knock raid is why crime went down. Um, but clearly, you know, it was not, uh, it, de it didn't hurt things in D.C. not using the no-knock raid. It didn't make things worse. Um, nationally, though, these federal officers, these federal narcotics officers started conducting these no-knock raids across the country. Uh, and this was, you know, you, this was accompanied by a lot of rhetoric from the, from the Nixon administration, dehumanizing drug offenders, uh, really, you know, using this martial rhetoric, saying we have to declare all-out war. Um, the head of the office that was conducting these raids referred to drug, drug offenders as vermin. Um, and you see this sort of these out-of-control narcotic, federal narcotics officers raiding houses, uh, conducting raids without warrant, hit warrants, hitting the wrong houses. Um, several of these raids then get some news coverage, New York Times and the AP do some investigations and find dozens more cases where the wrong people were raided. And interestingly, Congress holds hearings and they bring these people in to testify and they actually, three years later, they repeal both no-knock raid laws and actually pass another law uh, making the federal government liable for any mistaken raids conducted by federal agents. Um, and it was a sort of rare moment where, uh, you know, the drug war wasn't yet completely intractable and Congress could sort of say, hey, we went too far here and we're going to rein things back a little bit. Um, but these, so throughout the 1970s, and these two trends continue, you've got the drug war going on, you've got the rise of SWAT teams. By 1975, there were about 500 SWAT teams. Um, you know, five years earlier, there'd been one. But throughout the 70s, SWAT teams were used for this, you know, this original purpose, this idea of using violence to defuse an already violent situation. So they're being used to respond to riots, active shooting situations, hostage taken, takings, um, escaped felons. Uh, and they're, they're used, you know, in a way that's very effective, um, that saves lives, uh, and the drug war sort of moving along in its own way. Um, these federal narcotics agents weren't SWAT teams. They were, you know, usually in plain clothes. They were undercover officers. Um, it was really during the 1980s then that we, we see these two trends converge, and during the Reagan administration, when Reagan really takes the drug war, meta drug war metaphor uh, and makes it very literal. Um, so, you see this ratcheting up of the martial rhetoric and the war rhetoric from the Reagan administration. He, he declared drugs a threat to U.S. national security. Uh, he compared the, the drug war to the World War I Battle of Verdun, um, which is, I've always found amusing because it's, Verdun is known as being this sort of long, protracted, bloody battle that really didn't mean anything and neither side really could claim victory after it was done. So the metaphor is probably more apt than Reagan realized at the time. Um, but you see really more and more of this sort of dehumanizing of drug offenders from the Reagan administration and, and from a lot of members in Congress. <clears throat> and this was actually bipartisan. I, I mentioned in the book that the leading Democrats in Congress were very, very critical of Reagan's drug policies, but they were critical of them for not going nearly far enough. Um, and so, you know, it's a, sort of a bipartisan race um, to, you know, sort of an all-out war uh, on drug offenders. Um, you have William Bennett who was Reagan's uh, education secretary and was our first sort of official drug czar, who um, at one point said he would have no, no moral objection to publicly beheading drug dealers. Uh, and then you have Gates also, at, who at one point said he think, thought drug users, not dealers, should be taken out in the street and shot. Um, this was a position he had to walk back when his son was caught with drugs a couple times. Um, but, you know, you really do see this ratchet, ratcheting up of the rhetoric, and this has an effect on the way uh, these, you know, uh, 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 policies are being carried out on the ground. Um, Reagan brings the National Guard in to start doing drug enforcement. Uh, he creates these joint task forces now where police departments are working directly with the military and drug interdiction e efforts 
Um, and he uh, makes, starts making, uh, creating these anti, federal anti-drug grants and also starts making this military equipment available uh, to police agencies to use. This is you know, Pentagon Defense Department equipment gear that police departments are now allowed to start accessing and using. And we'll see this uh, expand rapidly throughout the, the late 80s and, and 90s. Um, and this is just, uh, there are lots of examples of this, of this in the book, but this rhetoric really starts to filter down to police agencies across the country. This is actually from just a few years ago, but you know, this is the sheriff in Clayton County, Georgia. And I mean, this is striking to me. I mean, this is not, you know, he's saying, not only do we, do we need to wage war on drugs, but it has to be a, you know, a muscular tough war like the Normandy invasion, not one of those puny wars like Vietnam. Um, you know, this is, he's talking about his own constituents here, and he's saying we need to basically treat his own constituents as if we were invading the beaches of Normandy. Um, again, I mean, that, you know, when your sheriff says that, that has to have an impact on the way his deputies sort of look at the people that they're serving and look at the people in the community. Um, so then what we see is with this military equipment going to the police departments, these federal grants that are tied to, to drug policing, uh, these police departments start SWAT teams, and then there's this strong financial incentive to use them. Um, in addition to the federal grants, you also have asset forfeiture, uh, which allows police to take property that uh, they think is connected to drug activity or illegal activity in some way. Um, the person who owns the property never has to even be charged with the crime, actually. Uh, and then you have to go to court to win the property back uh, and prove you, you own it legitimately. And so there's this, this added incentive now to send your SWAT. So you could, you know, you've got your SWAT team, you could sort of keep them in mothballs until one of these legitimate emergencies creeps up. Uh, or you could send them out on these drug raids, which had the potential to actually bring revenue back to the police department. So there's this strong incentive now to send your SWAT team out on drug raids. And this is um, uh, Peter Kraska, a criminologist at Eastern Kentucky University. Uh, in the late 90s, he did a series of surveys of police departments across the country uh, and asked them, basically going back to the early 80s, how many times they used their SWAT teams. And what he found is in, you know, in the late 70s, there were about a few hundred SWAT raids per year across the country. Uh, which, if you think about, you know, these these types of emergency situations, um, you know, may make some sense. But by the early 80s, we were up to a few thousand per year. And when Kraska did a follow-up survey in 2005, he estimated we were up to about 50,000 per year. Um, so we're up to, you know, from a few hundred in the 70s to about 50,000 per year as of 2005. Um, there isn't really any good data since then, but you know, all the trends that have sort of been driving this have continued. So, you know, I think it's safe to estimate that it hasn't probably has not gone down, at least. Um, this is um, Sheriff Leon Lott in uh, Richland County, South Carolina. Uh, and this is his tank. Um, he got this through the Pentagon, uh, Pentagon giveaway program. Uh, it has a 360-degree uh, uh, rotating machine gun turret on top that shoots 50 caliber ammunition, um, which is a, a, a type of ammunition that even the military has some restrictions on. I mean, it's completely inappropriate for domestic policing. Um, he calls this tank the peacemaker. Uh, he put out a press release when it came out with this photo with a quote at the top that said uh, from the Bible, Best, you know, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God uh, when he was announcing this tank. Um, to give you an idea of what and what sorts of situations he finds this level of force appropriate, uh, you may remember a few years ago, uh, Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer, was photographed smoking pot at the University of South Carolina. Well, Sheriff Lott personally took offense to this because it happened in his county. Uh, and so we, there's actually a lawsuit pending against him right now, and you, you know, have to take for or take with a grain of salt that this is one half of a lawsuit. But the description of what happened uh, is that he actually sent his SWAT team in to raid the homes of the people who were pictured in that photo. Uh, so there are these uh, surreal descriptions of SWAT teams breaking into these homes, throwing people on the ground, pointing guns at them, and screaming, you know, not where the guns or where the drugs, but what do you know about Michael Phelps? Which is amusing and sort of terrifying at the same time. Um, these are just some various photos of uh, SWAT or uh, military gear uh, used, utilized by police departments. A lot of you may have heard about this case um, in Maricopa County where uh, the action star Steven, Steven Seagal had been deputized by Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, they were filming a reality show, so they sent Arpa our, uh, Seagal out in Arpaio's own tank that he got through the Pentagon program. Uh, and they sent them after this poor guy who was suspected of cockfighting, so raising chickens to fight each other. Uh, and in order to serve the warrant on him, uh, Steven Seagal drove the tank into the guy's living room. Uh, when asked if that was an appropriate use of force, Seagal said he was an animal lover. That's why that sort of force was justified. Um, they ended up euthanizing all the chickens and killing the guy's two dogs as well. 
Um, these are just sort of more photos. Uh, this is the SWAT team at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Um, this is another trend we're seeing. Now college campuses are, are uh, uh, starting their own SWAT teams. Um, and the justification is always, you know, Virginia Tech, Columbine, these mass shooting incidents, and then we have to be prepared. Um, problem is that these mass shooting incidents are, are vanishingly rare. They get a lot of coverage when they happen. Uh, but there's a sociologist at the, uh, the Uni University of Virginia, uh, Dewey Cornell, who has crunched the numbers and he anticipate, or he says that the, uh, estimates that the average middle school, high school, or college campus can expect to see uh, a homicide on campus about once every six or 7,000 years. Um, so the idea that you need a SWAT team on every college campus to guard against these shootings, I think, is a little uh, overblown. But of course, once you have the SWAT team, again, you want to use it, and there are plenty of drug offenders and drug dealers on college campuses uh, to keep them busy once they're up and running. Um, these are a couple of raids we did with, the, with Cato, or a couple of maps that we did, online maps we did when I uh, wrote this paper for the Cato Institute. And the idea was to kind of dispel the idea that um, these mistaken raids, uh, while rare in proportion to the total number of raids done, uh, that they were rare sort of in number. Um, and there's no sort of comprehensive way to catalog these. Uh, but, you know, I would estimate I get sent stories of them a couple times a week. But these are actual all documented cases. You can click on each one of these little thumbtacks and get a, a description of what happened with the, the media coverage. Um, in this map, uh, these are cases where completely innocent people were killed in one of these raids. So these are these were not even nonviolent offenders. These were people where they found nothing. They got the wrong house. Someone was killed. Or maybe they got the wrong house, but a child was killed in the crossfire. Um, but these are cases where a completely innocent person was killed during one of these raids. And uh, I've, I think I have over about 50 of these cataloged now. Um, how much time do I have? OK. I'm going to try to speed it up just a little bit here. Um, so there are two kind of ma other major milestones that I want to talk about. The first comes in 1996 when uh, California legalizes medical marijuana. Um, you know, until this point, the argument for this kind of force, these, these raids, was that, um, that you know, drug dealers were dangerous people. They were heavily armed. They, you know, had no moral qualms about killing police officers. Uh, and, you know, there are, there are rebuttals to those arguments, but those were, you know, those were at least arguments being made that we need this kind of force to respond to a proportionate threat. Um, when California legalizes medical marijuana and several states then follow suit, uh, the federal government responds by sending SWAT teams to raid these medical marijuana clinics. Now, this, at this point, you can no longer say that these people are a threat, right? These clinics are openly operating. They're, most of them have business licenses. They're operating under state law. Um, the, you know, the, the hippie mom and pop couple running the, the pot dispensary are not going to take a gun out from under the counter and kill a bunch of federal agents, right? Um, so at this point, the, the use of this sort of force is about sending a message. Um, it's about making an example of these people because they're flouting federal law. Um, and, you know, I would submit that this is sort of a terrifying development, right? Uh, when, the, when the government's now using violence to make a political statement, this is not something we normally associate with the free society. Uh, and, of course, these, these raids have con con, um, continued ever since and, in fact, really just accelerated uh, under the Obama administration. Um, the next kind of uh, major milestone we see is um, mission creep with SWAT teams. And this is probably in the last decade or so. Um, you know, I've started finding these stories where SWAT teams are being used for increasingly petty crimes. Um, and also as uh, sort of using these crimes as a way to sort of get around the Fourth Amendment, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, but so first we see, you know, the rise of the Texas Hold'em craze in the mid-2000s. Uh, we see responses, you know, from local uh, communities where the SWAT teams are now raiding these neighborhood poker games. Um, you know, in some cases there may have been legitimate gambling, you know, significant gambling operations, but in other cases, I mean, they were raiding bars that were adver openly advertising this, po you know, this poker game that they were having. Uh, Reason we documented a case in Dallas where they rented, uh, raided a um, Veterans of Foreign Wars uh, hall because they were conducting charity games that weren't in compliance with Texas law. So instead of, you know, sending a couple bureaucrats to say, hey, you need to change, change how you're doing this, they send the SWAT team, you know, scare the hell out of everyone. Um, we're now seeing SWAT raids now to even enforce regulatory law. Uh, and I wrote about one of these cases a few years ago in Manassas Park, Virginia. There was a 50-member police raid on this pool hall, uh, and it was done under the guise of an alcohol inspection. They sent somebody along from the Virginia Alcohol Beverage Control Board. Uh, and, you know, this was actually a drug investigation, but they, couldn't, they didn't have enough evidence to get a search warrant to conduct a drug search. So instead, they bring along somebody from this regulatory agency, and now this is officially an alcohol inspection, even though they're bringing in the SWAT team to enforce it. 
Uh, and the guy who, who owned that bar actually brought a federal lawsuit, and the, uh, the Federal Court of Appeals uh, actually said that there's nothing unreasonable about sending a SWAT team to enforce regulatory law, which is also sort of terrifying. Um, this is in Orlando, Florida, a few years ago. The police suspected that there was drug activity going on in barber shops. Uh, again, they didn't have enough evidence to actually get a search warrant for these shops, uh, so they called up the uh, State Occupational Licensing Board, who sent an inspector along, and now these were licensure inspections to make sure that these barbers were properly licensed to cut hair. Um, they ended up, I think they arrested 37 people, either 37 or 47, um, and all but three were arrested for uh, barbering without a license. They did find two people who had some drugs on them and were charged with a misdemeanor, and I think one, one had enough to be charged with a felony. But again, this is sort of where, I mean, this is true of almost any government entity. There's always this mission creep where you try to uh, seek out new reasons for your existence. And we're seeing this with SWAT teams where they're now being deployed. You know, at one point in the 70s, they were the absolute last resort. Uh, and now we're increasingly seeing them uh, as a first resort. And in fact, I just uh, debated a police officer on Fox News this morning who actually said that there are lots of police departments who only who serve every single search warrant with the SWAT team. Uh, which is actually the first time I had heard that. But, um, you know, again, this is not about assessing the threat. This is now about, you know, we have a hammer, so every problem looks like a nail. Um, I'm going to close with, um, skip through some of these. Um, you'll have to read the book to get the Shaquille O'Neal story, but I encourage it. This is a, a team of Tibetan monks on a peace mission who overstayed their visa. So naturally, the response is to send the SWAT team. <laughs> um, increasingly seeing these aggressive responses to protests. This started in Seattle in 1999 with the WTO protests. Um, and I actually interviewed the police chief in Seattle at the time who, who or orchestrated that response, uh, Norm Stamper, who now calls it one of the biggest mistakes of his career because he's seen how the response to protests since has been uh, sort of to expect confrontation. Uh, and of course, when you go out expecting confrontation on either side, police or protesters, it inevitably happens. Um, this is a, a scene from Denver where you can see sort of the ratio of riot police to actual protesters. This is the T-shirt that the Denver Police Union sold uh, leading up to the protest, uh, the DNC in Denver in 2008. You can see it says, uh, we get up early to beat the crowds, um, which is sort of an, I mean, the fact that a police organization was selling these T-shirts is, is rather disturbing. Um, and this goes back again to sort of the, what we call the mindset uh, problem, which is that when you, uh, take police officers and you um, arm them like soldiers, you train them in military tactics, um, you switch to these sort of battle dress uniforms which are more uh, mimic the military, uh, and you tell them they're fighting a war, um, it does have an effect on the way they approach their jobs. I mean, that should not be surprising uh, to anyone. Uh, and it sort of encourages them at some point to start seeing the people that they serve as an other or, or even an enemy. Um, I'm gonna close with the story of Corey May because I think it um, really kind of illustrates uh, how absurd things have become. Um, so Corey was uh, uh, 21 at the time, the day after Christmas in 2000, uh, 2001. Um, there was a police raid on his house. He lived in a duplex. The guy who lived on the other side actually had drug charges pending against him. Corey's name wasn't on the warrant. His, his girlfriend's name wasn't on the warrant. Um, but they raided both sides of the duplex. Um, Corey was, uh, had no criminal record. Uh, he was home with his 18-month-old daughter. It's about 12.30 in the morning. He wakes up to the sound of people trying to break into his, his apartment. Police claim they knocked and announced themselves. Corey says he never heard them. Uh, he went to the bedroom, laid down by his daughter uh, with a gun that he kept on the nightstand, sort of hoping the noises would go away. Uh, they didn't, they move around to the back of the house. The door flies open, a figure in black enters the room. Corey fires three shots uh, and kills Officer Ron Jones. Um, now, Jones was white, Corey was black. This isn't a part of Mississippi where race is unfortunately still a sort of suffocating part of everyday life. Jones also happened to be the son of the town police chief. Um, you know, Corey's, Corey's version of events was that he, he had no idea these were police. The, he, you know, shot and fired at one of these figures to, to protect himself and his daughter. And as soon as he realized they were cops, he surrendered and dropped his gun and with three bullets still left in the gun. Now, the state's version was that Corey looked out the window and saw that a raiding team of police was coming at him, that he decided to take them on uh, with a handgun, uh, that he shot and killed one of them, and then surrendered with bullets still left in the gun. Uh, you know, you can decide which, which of those scenarios you find more plausible. Um, but this, you know, this, he had a, basically he had a roach in his house that would have gotten him a $50 fine, um, but he was... Uh, uh, charged and convicted of capital murder, the intentional killing of a police officer, and sentenced to death. 
Um, I'll skip through all the legal stuff that happened in between, but um, you know, eventually, uh, at the uh, a couple years ago, uh, the, his uh, conviction was overturned by the Mississippi Supreme Court. Uh, he was given a new trial. The prosecutors decided instead of trying again, trying him again, they would allow him to plead to felony manslaughter, uh, and he would get time served. At this point, he had been in prison for 10 years. Um, I tell the story because uh, at his homecoming party uh, in Mississippi, you know, it's very celebratory and a joyous occasion. You know, he's taking kids out for rides on his uh, four-wheeler, and there's a big soul food buffet, and you know, everybody's happy and joyous that this has happened, that he's out and he's free and he's back with his kids. But I was talking with his attorney about this, and, and you know, we were happy for him too. But at some point, then we realized how absurd it was that we were happy, right? I mean, this is a guy who had done nothing wrong. I mean, maybe he smoked some pot on the side, but he was was not the the drug dealer they were looking for, um, who had people break into his home in the middle of the night, put him in this terrifying position of having to make this life or death decision. He made a mistake, like a lot of police officers have done in these raids. Uh, the, the state then tried to kill him, um, took him away from his kids for 10 years. And this was you know, a guy who actually you know, was great to his kids. His, his, um, <laughs> the mother of the woman he had a child with out of wedlock testified as a character witness at his trial to give you sort of an idea of what a father he was. Um, and he was actually you know, defending his kids that night. And so we're sitting there, he's taken away from his kids for 10 years, he, he, he's now has a felony record, he'll never vote, you know, he has to tell that, explain that he's a felon every time he applies for the job. And like this was one of the good stories, right? Like this was a, a good outcome, like we were relieved that this had happened. Uh, and it was sort of an illustration of sort of just how low, I think, our expectations have become uh, on this particular issue that we could be sort of joyous at this particular occasion. Um, with that, I think I'll uh, turn it over to Mark and we'll go from there. Thank you. Good afternoon. How's everyone? Um, I want to thank the Cato Institute for providing this forum today. And um, I want to thank you for your participation and attendance here and your interest in this subject. First, I want to acknowledge the, the dedication and service our men and women in blue provide to us every day. Just um, yesterday, I left Orlando, Florida, <clears throat> and yesterday morning, a young 24-year-old Orlando police officer, Jason Hijack, was shot twice during a traffic stop. He's recuperating and recovering now. He's going to make it. This and other incidents remind us all the danger that face our law enforcement community each day. I would like to thank Mr. Balco for the, on the release of his book. Uh, in looking at the reviews, he is creating quite a stir in the discussion of paramilitarization and policing today, which is a good thing. Discussion, critique, and review of any process, system, policy, law, and or procedure is good for the growth, improvement, and reflection, or change. We must, never, we must never forget that policing in America is a civil servant position that is funded by taxpayers and that they are accountable to the public. You all agree on that? Right. <clears throat> the perception of policing that is mentioned in Mr. Balco's book is that of us against them or them against us. And to me, that's not an accurate statement <clears throat> um, in that the vast majority of police officers in the United States take pride in their duties and are actively involved in the service and protection of our communities. Day in, day out, these men and women risk their lives for the security and freedoms of our public. However, there have been times when certain officers, units, and or departments have misused their authority and committed actions that have resulted in the injuries or death of innocent victims. These incidents have been the catalyst for media, court, and governing bodies critical review, which is rightly so. Lately, 
The use of tactical teams has been under much scrutiny also. Therefore, it is paramount to actively address those perceptions, whether they're true or false, through forums like this to, and comprehensive research studies, external and internal reviews, and to learn from past best and worst practices to ensure that professionalism of policing and tactical teams is portrayed and further developed and not misused. I've witnessed firsthand when I was in Liberia, West Africa, the tragedy of abuse of power and absolute power in policing and in the military. We in the United States, although sometimes flawed, granted, are the gold seal for policing throughout the world. We should take pride in that accomplishment. In our country, we have, have, we have many checks and balances that ensure our freedoms are secured and not compromised. One such check and balance is the freedom of speech, more specifically, the media. Having open discussions like the one we're having here today is necessary to ensure accountability and necessary improvements on how we police. Moreover, the ability to effectively communicate within the law enforcement community provides a peer review process allowing for the collective body of the best practices and internal accountability. The National Tactical Officer Association, NTOA, is a 30-year-old nonprofit association comprised of dedicated members of the tactical enforcement community, canine negotiators, tactical medical services, corrections, and patrol. The NTOA does not have statutory or regulatory authority. The NTOA provides a forum for training and exchange of ideas through its quarterly publications, training classes, and conferences. It advocates for professionalism, safety, and performance standards in the tactical community. Most states have their own state tactical associations that also provide a similar form for training, exchange of ideas, commitment to professionalism, and performance standards. Between the NTOA and the state associations, we recognize the fact that there are times, as mentioned in Mr. Balco's book, when mistakes were made in the utilization of tactical teams. Sometimes lives were lost, injuries sustained, involving suspect victims, and even police officers. This is a very important statement I'm gonna make. It is the mission of tactical teams to save lives, period. Whether it's the victim, innocent citizens, police officers, or even the suspects. Through the use of specialized equipment, tactics, and weapons, these units are available tool that police departments can use for situations that are above the training and capabilities of first responders. And that is the intent and mission of SWAT. With over 18,000 police departments, tragic situations will occur. However, the goal of zero occurrences of police-related injuries, deaths, wrongful activities is the foundation of associations like the NTOA, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the Police Executive Research Forum, National Sheriff's Associations, <coughs> and other associations similar. Through platforms such as training, conferences, communication standards, and thorough research, the capability to lessen these situations increases and the environment to develop professionalism in policing is enhanced. The con concept of Paramilitarization in policing is up for discussion today. The use of tactical teams and the furtherance of that concept is one of the cornerstones of Mr. Balco's book. As mentioned, um, the first SWAT team was developed by Chief Darrell Gates in the 1960s in, in Los Angeles. The number, since then, the number of tactical teams have increased since its inception, and the use has also increased. Um, today, we're honored to have in attendance retired LAPD 
Senior Sergeant Ryan McCarthy, who was, who was one of the first SWAT officers with LAPD. Ryan, right, stand up. <laughs> He's quiet now. <laughs> but um, he was personally involved in several of the Los Angeles incidents that are mentioned in the book. Um, the, the Black Panther Party, the, um, what was the other one? SLA. SLA, yeah. Here's some pictures that, from Ron's personal collection <laughs> of what was found um, at the time was out the Black Panther Party. Yeah, so you can include that in your next book. <laughs> um, also, um, Ron has um, some corrections for the, this book that he needs to get with you since he was there. Yeah, we talked about <laughs> it. Oh, you talked about it? <laughs> um, also, uh, Sergeant McCarthy was one of the original founders of the NTOA. Again, NTOA, its members represent some of the best tactical officers in the country to include large, mid-sized, mid small departments, sheriffs, and police departments who bring to the association a wealth of experience and professionalism. They're, and also, they are part of our instructor cadre. The NTOA, NTOA recently published the NTOA, NTOA SWAT standards, which were revised with the input from various individuals and state tactical associations. These standards are recommendations and guidelines for tactical teams and police leadership. Again, the NTOA does not have any regulatory or statutory authority. However, many teams have used them, the standards, in whole or had developed their own policies using them as a framework. In addition, many states have similar binding and non-binding standards for their tactical teams. Currently, as, as even Mr. Balco mentioned, currently it's difficult to get a big picture of the status of the use of tactical teams, how they're used, when they're used, the outcomes, what type of equipment's being used. Um, there have been several limited studies in this area over the past several decades but nothing as far as a national in-depth research study. So, I am pleased to announce today here um, that the NTOA is in a final agreement with the International Association of Chiefs of Police to conduct a national survey in-depth research project covering hopefully the past 10 years of the use of tactical teams. The NTOA will fund the research project, which will be conducted by the IACP, along with the Chicago-based National Opinion Research Center. I'd like to introduce Mr. John Furman. John, stand up. John is the IACP Research Center Director, and he'll be um, handling this endeavor. Thanks, John. The NTOA, along with the IACP and state associations, would like to distinguish perception from reality, debunking myths where reliable information proves otherwise, or confirming improper procedures or practices that need to be addressed. Today, as evident by your attendance, many individuals have reasonable interest and in understanding tackle team practices more fully, particularly citizens, media, community organizations, and governing bodies. The study will faci facilitate a more accurate view of tactical team actions from a statistically defined perspective over time versus focusing on anecdotal incidents. I know there are other areas of concern that Mr. Balka has mentioned in his book and in his writings, namely the Pentagon giveaways, burn grants, cop grants, DHS anti-terror grants, medical marijuana rates, and asset forfeiture laws. These policies are legislative and executive office initiatives, which I nor the NTAA will have any comments on today. These initiatives need to be renewed, reviewed, and discussed in a public forum with legislators in which the community can voice its opinions with their respective legislators. It is through this process changes can be made if deemed so. And again, it's all part of our check and balance system that we have. So in closing, I'd like to thank you for your participation here. I uh, look forward to meeting with you afterwards and 
taking any questions you may have. And also, if you have any questions for Good Sergeant McCarthy or John Foreman um, during the Q&A or after this um, session, they're available also. So thank you. Before we open it up to Q&A, I'd like to give Radley and then Mark about a minute or so to address anything that they wanted to before that. Um, yeah, just a, a few quick comments. Um, so I'm sure Mark and I would disagree about uh, what sorts of situations are appropriate for tactical units and, and I, my definition would, or my range of situations would probably be much narrower. Uh, but to the extent that we do have SWAT teams, um, I'm, I would like to emphasize, and I point this out in the book, that I do think there are legitimate reasons for using these sorts of tactics. And that's when you have these, uh, you know, an immediate threat to lives, uh, when you have these emergency type situations. Um, I think the, the chief objection is when, you know, when you have, or, well, the appropriate use is, when, again, when you're using violence to defuse already violent situations. Um, the objection is when you're, you're creating violence and confrontation where there was none before, uh, which is what we, you know, is what I would argue is happening on these drug raids. Um, but again, I would like to emphasize, I, I do think there are legitimate reasons for SWAT teams. And so to the extent that we're going to have them, I do think NTOA pro provides a valuable service in that they establish best practices, they establish guidelines. Um, if we are going to have these units, we want them to be as well-trained and professional as possible. Um, that said, um, this, uh, obviously, the Black Panthers were very well armed. Um, but this sort of gets to my point, though, also, is that I would not object to the use of those tactics in that raid. Um, you know, that is a perfectly appropriate use for a SWAT team. You had this violent group that had, um, well, depending on whose story you believe, uh, a police officer, you know, went to respond to a noise complaint and had a bunch of guns pointed at him, or if there are other scenarios. Nobody, uh, there are competing narratives about what happened. Um, but I would not consider this an inappropriate use of a SWAT team at all. And so, uh, you know, the fact that they were this well-armed, I think, proves that it was a, a legitimate use for this kind of force.